Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Your host, Roger Abel, episode 138. And fortunately, I have Elias Randall back because, Eli, you you probably didn't watch the show with Jonas, but I kept calling Jonas Elias multiple, multiple times. It's a nice compliment for Jonas. I know. I missed you. Thanks. So I have a question. Do you know who Sophia Barra is? Yeah. She's on... Um... What's it? she's Gen on a TV planning. show? No, right? she has, she runs Gen Y Planning. Oh, I'm thinking of the actress. Who are you talking about? Sophia Bear. She's a financial planner. Um, okay. People in our industry know her. She kind of I won't say she's a pioneer, but she she was one of the first to kind of run just a virtual type office okay. where she only meets with people virtually. And I don't follow her that much, but I do a little bit. But I thought it'd be fun. She um she had a question that they asked her, and today's show is going to be about the biggest money mistakes financial advisors have made because I think sometimes people forget we're human too. We don't do everything perfect. And the, the, the Sophia Barra came up because the first question was to her and they said, they asked Sophia what the biggest mistake she made was. And she said, I didn't negotiate my first salary. So when she started as a financial advisor, her salary was $40,000. They gave her a 401k mat, 401k and a 4% match on that. And she said she thought she'd won the lottery because if you think about it, if you're a college person coming, coming out of college, getting into this industry and someone offers you $40,000 and freedom, because that's what they sell you when you come into the industry is you're going to have freedom. You know, you'd be just like Sophia. You thought you won the lottery and uh, her biggest regret was not, negotiating the salary. And I think this probably happens for a lot of people, Elias. I know my wife had taken a job in the past where they asked her what she wanted to make. And she took into account, hey, I'm getting this salary plus commissions. But the commissions that they told her she was actually going to make were never attainable to get. So she always had regret that she didn't ask for more. And I think a lot of people have that same regret that they feel like they should have asked for more. Yeah, at least ask. I don't know of your first job how much um, negotiating people are going to be willing to do, but I guess in her scenario, it wouldn't have hurt to if you get offered forty. Ask, well, would you pay me fifty? Um, you know, that just just a question. The worst that's going to happen is they'll say no. Um, yeah, and then okay, but like you just said, your wife wish she would ask for more money. But when you're excited and you're getting a new job and someone's saying, oh, you can make all this commission and then you find out, oh, that's unrealistic. I mean, and how many people does that happen to? There's so many sales jobs out there where they tell you, you have unlimited income potential. That's not true. No, no. That, that's was... not true. Unless you have an unlimited way to scale what you're doing. Yeah, then you do. But there's no such thing as just, oh, unlimited income potential. I was in a situation like that in my, my personal life where they're like, yeah, you know, unlimited income. But the only way to actually make the money they said said could be made was not to increase the market share. It was actually to create a bigger market. So, so if you think about a job, let's say there, there's the whole state of Iowa has, you know, the, the mark, the total market share is a million dollars for any product. But for you to actually hit your sales goals, you have to do 2 million. Not only are you going to have to get market share, you have to create a market. And that was, I was at a job like that one time. Good I'm like, I, I, I said to my boss, I said, Hey, 
so not only do you want me to like get a hundred percent of the market share, you want me to double the actual market that's here. Like yeah. there's, that's not attainable. Yep, we do. And, and I think you're right. There's so many of these sales jobs out there. Oh yeah. You're going to make 130,000. Well, your salary's 40. The rest is all bonuses or commissions. And you know, those really, a lot of that's dependent upon what the product offering is for the company. You know, there's great salespeople that can overcome that, but it's not overcome immediately. And I always have this thought in my mind, if there's a sales job out there, Elias, that somebody's looking to apply for, and they're telling you you're gonna make all this money, the first question you could you should ask yourself is, why is this job available? Why did the person before me leave? Because if it was this great of a job, why are they no longer here? And what I found in my, in my you know, 20 years in business is that most of the time, the reason there's no one in the job is because there was some unrealistic expectation set that can't be hit. If you're taking a sales job, you should expect that it's going to be a grind. It's going to be a crappy sales job until you turn it around. No one just gets to walk into like this super lucrative sales job. Otherwise they wouldn't need you. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I didn't, I've never even probably thought of it that way, but yeah, if there's just a readily available job, I mean, good salespeople are working the good job. So it's like our industry, you know, there's acquisition opportunities. If someone hasn't been bought already, you got to ask yourself, why is this available? And why isn't this selling? There is a listing out there for a acquisition opportunity. It's been out there for like five years. And I know that's, whole background of it. And what they wanted was an unrealistic valuation. They wanted to come back and still work. And it was just an odd deal. That's why it took five years for them to sell it. Cause it probably wasn't a yeah, great deal. A lot like, of people. Yeah. There's not enough people that were interested. Right? Most things that people are selling are a project just quite frankly. So I think that's really a normal mistake. And I think there's a lot of people in our industry who sell themselves short of what they probably should be making. Yeah. And some of that's probably, um, I, I guess some of it's probably some confidence. Like there's some language in here. Confidence is key. And when you're, th there's some things you can do when you're negotiating and you're talking about this. The first thing is you, can, you can't be scared to maybe ask some questions. And then also if you get told no, you can always counter that with, well, what would I have? What, what would I have to do? Are there some projects that you can give me that I can prove that I'm worth that amount of money? And can we revisit this in a certain amount of time, six months, 12 months? And th there's always an angle, right? And I think typically when people are a little bit shy to ask, it might be, or they're lacking confidence, you know, maybe they don't really think they are that valuable. But if you're a good worker and you know that you're consistently doing all the things your company wants, I think most companies are probably happy to negotiate with someone. I mean, ultimately to run a business, you need people with those type of skills, right? Like it might be a little bit painful when you're negotiating, but those are important skills to have in any business. So money mistake number two, and I think there's probably a very, very large percentage of people in our industry that have probably done this. And this is uh, I'm considering doing it right now. No, you won't. Yeah, you will probably <laughs> at some point you will. Um, we've all done it. 
there's there's a gal by the name of Winnie Sun. She's the co-founder and managing director of Sun Group Wealth Partners, and she's actually part of the CNBC Financial Advisor Council. And they asked her what was the biggest money mistake you've ever made, and she said leasing too much car. Um, and she she was working at uh, Smith Barney early in her career when she went out and did this and buying too much car, I think is very common in the financial advisor world. Like you start making good money. You're like, man, I want to get that fancy car. And in her case, she got this, you know, dream Mercedes car. And I, I remember when I was early in my career, I bought a brand new avalanche truck. You know, I always, I always wanted an avalanche. And I remember when I bought that car, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not doing this again because I signed up for a car payment at that point in time in my life. I was 24 years old, brand new avalanche truck. And at that time, like the car payment I had was a lot of money. I'm like, I'm not signing up for this again. And I drove that car for a long time. I think I drove that car for like nine years and I had a lot of miles on it. It's my favorite, one of my favorite cars though. But I think it's very common for people to, to overspend in a car. You know, if you think about you know, how Dave Ramsey talks about cars, you should be paying cash. There's a lot of experts out there that think that your car shouldn't be more than 20% of your take home pay. So if you think about it, if you're making a hundred thousand a year, you should have like a $20,000 car. I'm going to guess most people making a hundred thousand dollars a year have more than a $20,000 car. There's a lot of nice cars out there. That is for sure. Um, and they're getting more expensive. The average car payment's seven hundred dollars now. It's going to be a thousand soon. Oh yeah, there's car. There's plenty of cars out there right now. That so the first house I ever bought was seventy two thousand dollars. There's a lot of cars out there that cost more than that. And I and I was living there. You can't. Well, I guess you can live in a car if you have to. But good luck doing that. I mean, there. You know, this is a little bit about like what. Jonas likes to talk about Elias. How do we have like these lifestyle investments? Some people having a really nice car is what they live to do. There's car people, right? Like we know people that are into cars and that's not just their mode of transportation. Like it is for the vast majority of the public for a lot of people, like their car might be their hobby. I'm not really a car guy. I'd like to drive a nice car, but I'm not into like sports cars or stuff like that. I'm into like nice trucks and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I, I'm really not either. I could really care less about the vehicle I drive, which it shows. No, I know. No, no it does. It, it does. Well, we we had the conversation so I, this morning. I drive you, a Chev. I drive a Chevrolet Malibu. That one, I didn't even buy it. My wife gave it to me, and it's like driving a go kart. I mean, the th it's tiny. Uh, it has no like that it's like a four cylinder car. So, you know, when you're getting like, when you're entering on to a road that people are driving 70 miles per hour, like good luck getting up to speed are you flooring it. You have to, that's the only way you can be safe in that. So, it's like, I feel like, I feel like I'm driving, like I'm Mario driving a little go-kart and all these other, there's like semis <laughs> driving around me. Well, a good friend of mine, he could write a check for pretty much whatever car he wants. He drives Malibu. Really? Three, four years old. He'll probably keep it for a They're while. Probably, yeah, but the but one he's, I, he frugal guy. He doesn't care about his car, just wants to have a car that runs, doesn't want a car payment, doesn't want to spend a lot on it. 
But he could write a check for, if he wanted an $80,000 car, he could write a check. He's opting for a Malibu. So yeah, the, they're good. It's been a very reliable, reliable vehicle. And the, really the only thing I don't like about it is it just doesn't have enough power to get going. And I don't always need that. Right. But if there's a two semis going 70 miles per hour and I'm having a hard time getting the car up to speed, that's just, it's just unsafe. Money must probably, I'm probably overthinking it too. It can't be that unsafe, but it just feels like I'm driving a go-kart when I drive it. It's it's plenty safe. Safer than a lot of other cars, I'm sure. Safer than the car my parents bought me when I was a senior in high school. They bought me one of those little Fieros. I don't know what that is. It's one of those cars that has the engine behind the seat. Like a little tiny Good. sports car. It was you, you like need, a used one. It was a Toyota Fiero. Well, I, I drove it for like six months, and we decided that it was probably the most unsafe car in Iowa because it was you know, rear-wheel drive, engine in the back. The first snowbank I hit is just going to crush me because there's nothing in front of you. That's where the trunk is. There's nothing stopping you from just, like, flattening the front of the car. So we drove it for, like, six months and got something a little little different. It was a fun car, though. Uh, money mistake number three. And I'll bet there's people now saying this exact same thing, but maybe not for the exact same reason. So this is a, a CFP by the name of Carolyn McClanahan. She's the founder of Life Planning Partners in Jacksonville, Florida. And they asked her what their biggest money mistake was. And she came into the investing world in the 90s. So if I preface that, I'll bet a lot of people can figure out that their biggest mistake is they went all in on tech. So the, this does resonate though with me, This her talking about going all in on tech early in her career. And I think... So from, from my experience as an investor, I know the longer I've been investing, and I, I can't say that I, I've ever gone in all in on anything super risky, but I think one thing that happens the longer you are, you are in your investing career, the more you simplify things and the, the things you'll consider to buy and how, and how you can actually do it. I, I know 10 years ago, I spent much more time trying to figure out things like how do I outperform the market and do things like that, that just kind of over time you learn or it's kind of, you learn that's kind of a foolish proposition. Um, and there's just better ways of growing your wealth. And typically it's through diversification, um, owning either good mutual funds, good ETFs, picking quality stocks. If you're going to be a stock picker, but you kind of over time, like I know for me over time, I've kind of lost my appetite to figure out the next shiny object of investing. I would say my portfolio is as boring as it ever has been. It's probably, I just feel like that's probably just going to be the way it is. Cause just the more you learn, the more you realize I don't need to chase. I don't need to chase things. I don't need to go with trends like me, like crypto. I don't ever need to buy cryptocurrency, whether Bitcoin does well or not really does not gonna have that big an impact on my life. Now, if I was a super early adopter and I became a millionaire because of Bitcoin or something like that, that's a different story. But um, I just, I'm someone that doesn't probably see the true, I don't see a utility or like a long-term use, so I just kind of don't do it. But um, 
anyway, yeah, that's I think that's a mistake not only advisors make, certainly when they're young, but a lot of retail investors make too. Uh, money mistake number four, and this is from the advisor side that, they, that they've seen, um, unloading inherited stock. Uh, this is from a advisor and said they'd inherited some Philip Morris stock. And um, they said since smoking had contributed to the death of the father, the couple wrestled with owning shares of the tobacco giant. At the same time, there's discussion in Congress about a sin tax. So I figured it was a good time to sell. You know, this is this is hard because this this is looking back at hindsight and saying, man, I wish I wouldn't have. At that time, though, like he's saying, th this individual is saying they didn't, they're unhappy they sold it, I think, because the stock went up. But this is, in my opinion, where it's not all about money. And because you inherited something? Yeah. Like, if my... If I inherited a tobacco stock and my family member just died because they were a smoker, regardless what the share price is going to do, I'm probably not going to own it. Like, I think this guy made the right move. He's looking back saying financially it wasn't the right move, but mentally it might have been the right move. I've also seen the flip side where people, they think they should sell it. And we actually talk them out of selling some stuff. Because there's the emotional attachment to it. If you've, if you've had, I don't know, any stock in your family for 80 years and it's been passed down through like two or three generations, maybe you just want to own it. Like Maybe it's not about the money. It's just, hey, this came from grandpa. Grandpa gave it to dad. Dad gave it to me. Like It's kind of like a cool story. It's almost like in Iowa we have century farms, farms that have been in the family 100 years. Well, clearly those guys are well into the money. They could sell for buku dollars based upon what they paid. Mm -hmm. So for those families, it's actually not about the money. It's about, can we have this farm in the family for another hundred years? It can be the same way with stock. So this is kind of a tricky one, but I, I don't think you should ever look back and say, oh, I wish I would have done that because now I know the outcome of what happened. Well, and here they're also talking about there was a discussion in Congress about a sin tax, and then ultimately that kind of influenced their decision to sell, which making portfolio decisions based upon what politicians are talking about, you know, we know and we're coming up on a time where we're going to talk about that a little more as the campaigns ra uh, ramp up and all that for the election next year. But that's a good reminder for investors that, it's making portfolio decisions based on politicians and the things they're talking about. That can be a mistake. Um, our markets really operate on the economy, how businesses are doing, uh, monetary policy, and, and all of those things. So, you know, in addition to there, it was kind of an emotional thing. They're probably looking at, well, they're talking about the syntax. We should just offload. And you here, we all know politicians, they're going to say a lot of things. So whether they come to fruition or not, it's a different different deal. The last money mistake from other financial advisors we're going to talk about is um, from an advisor in Irvine, California, and she's a CFP. So once again, as we talked about, just because we're advisors doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes with money. And for this individual is a female, and she said her biggest 
regret or mistake was procrastinating or not buying long-term care insurance until there's actually a health crisis. And I'm going to say this is one of the biggest ones I actually see for clients of ours too. Um, but once again, nobody thinks, you know, hey, in my 60s, I'm going to have some event that I'm not going to be able to get long-term care insurance or I'm going to need this long-term care insurance. And I always talk about this magical number of like 57, 58. If you look at most people, most people pre like 57, 58, they don't really have any like major health issues. But like around that number, it's like stuff starts to happen. And I know like, they, I don't know why, just I, that number comes to my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, you're 50, 60 years old. So you like, you have a health event now. And maybe you have diabetes, you, you develop diabetes as you got older because you couldn't control your weight or you had a heart attack or you had a stroke or, you know, all these different things start to happen the older you get. There's, you know, one truth in life. And that's typically we don't get healthier as we get older. So if you think about no. like Dave Ramsey, his philosophy on long-term care is you should buy this when you're 50. Like start looking at it. Why wouldn't you start looking at long-term care? Maybe it's 60. It's somewhere in there. But my parents, they bought when they were 50. I said, you need to buy it now. Yeah, I, I, think, the, I think the overall message is it is something to consider. And when you're younger and healthier, the underwriting can be more favorable and you might be able to get in, you know, get something that's actually going to help you someday. You're just going to, you're going to pay for it for a long time. So I'll give you a great example. I, we have, you know, obviously we work with lots of people, but almost every single person that that's a client of ours that doesn't have long-term care and then somebody and long-term care includes in-home health care, assisted living. All I, I lump that all together. They need some kind of like advanced care. When someone needs it in their family, their their comment is, "I guess it's probably too late to get any insurance that would cover this." Yeah. And literally, these are the same individuals five, six, seven years ago that I had conversations with about doing this. And at the time, you know, I, and I remember one very, very, very distinctly, the premium was going to be like 11,000 a year. And it was like a combo long-term care insurance, like legacy planning thing. Guess what they're paying right now for the nursing home? 11,000 a month. Oh, 11,000 a month. The premium was 11,000 a year, every year. Yeah. And they're paying 11 a month. And at the time they said, well, we can't afford that. Right. And so the, and they could, it's like they can afford 11,000 a month right. now. But and back then tricky... they looked and said, Hey, we can't afford it. Well, yeah, you can. You don't want to afford it because you don't think anything's going to happen to you. And, and it is a tricky to me. This is, these are harder conversations to have certainly with, with families that we work with. Cause there, there are some products and ways that you can ensure that just none of it's one, none of it's exciting, right? Like it's insurance products. Cause now you're starting to manage risk. Um, but I think the last couple of years is a good example of like when there's excess in the market, like when the market was trading really high at all time highs, I feel like there are some situations where, you know, some senior investors that are thinking about stuff like this, maybe you sell some of your stock portfolio and buy something to help you manage a future risk. Right. And it is part of our job to educate that just some of the hurdles and the challenges are one, 
they're hard to un- the products are hard to understand. Like you're kind of taking money that you're not really going to earn return on anymore too to do that. But it's kind of a total planning picture thing. Sometimes it is a good idea to do that. And I'm sure most people, when they need care, they probably wish they had something, it's right? Because you're going to have to self-insure if you don't this, have anything. This whole long-term care game, though, has become significantly harder to navigate. 25 years ago, 20 years ago, my father-in-law was selling long-term care insurance policies. And I remember, you used to be able to get unlimited benefits. So it means it'd pay for however long you were there. And they're reasonable premium, premiums people could afford. Today, unlimited benefits are gone. And for the vast majority of the population, a lot of these premiums are what I would consider almost unaffordable. You know, if, most, if you, most of the time, it's unaffordable. If you have $400,000 of investment assets and your long-term care premium is going to be 8000 a year, are you going to spend like 2% of your invest, investable assets every year to in, insure a long-term care stay that you get about 50% benefit? Like that's what people have to weigh. You know what I mean? There, there's a certain amount of people who think they need this and they just can't afford it. And then there's these people, there's another set of people who have a lot of money and they're like, well, I don't need it. You're right, you don't, but do you really want to write the check for $11,000 a month? So it's it's very difficult to navigate, and a lot of times you have to have some other reasons to do it. And we work with people to try to figure out what are the best options. In fact, Casey came in here right before this show. Hey, who are you guys using for your long-term care? And we only use one company, and it's mm-hmm. because of the strength of the company. We're not going to say who it is on air. If someone wants to know, they can reach out to us. But a long time ago... Jeff always used to tell a story, Elias, at, at workshops about this. And people 20 years ago shopped long-term care based on price because there were 20 or 30 carriers. Today, the carrier pool is very, very slim. Most of the large insurance companies have exited the space. It's a hard risk to quantify on a pure long-term care basis. It's a hard risk to actually actuarially figure out what pricing should be. And Jeff always made a comment when people are shopping this on premium. If we were jumping out of an airplane today and you had two options for the parachute, one was brand new, guaranteed to work, going to deploy. The other is lightly used. It's going to work like 95% of the time, but it's $1,000 cheaper. Which parachute are you going to pick? And there's never been anybody who ever said, I'm going to pick the less expensive parachute and roll the dice. But that's how people approach this decision. They say, ah, I'll take the less expensive one. Well, why do you think it's less expensive? I think For, that's insurance. I mean, that's insurance in general. I, you know, it's everyone's trying to save money on insurance. Get what you when, pay for. Right. And, and yeah, do you have to have the Cadillac? No. But when it comes to long-term care and like this event that could be, you know, financially catastrophic for a lot of families, buy the best company you can. Why would you buy anything less than the best company? Because, boy, I better make sure they're around in 30 years to pay the claim. Yeah, you're going to want that. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to want them to be financially solvent and be able to kind of live up to the promise or the contract, however you want to look at it. Um, I wish there was a more simple solution, though. It's just it's become so expensive. or just the concepts hard to understand. It would be nice if there was a more simple solution, but it's it's 
kind of a complicated problem. Like people are living longer and with the nursing home, it's either people either have a short stay or a real long stay, right? Like you look at the average and what is it like two to three years? But then we all know someone who was there for six months. We also all know people who are there for a decade. It's just so hard to tell how long people are going to be there. And ultimately it is sad if someone has to spend down their assets to, um, to get care, but sometimes that's just what, that's the situation. That's what you have to do. All right. So before we end the show, let's hear what you were going to tell me what the biggest money mistake you may make is going to be. Well, and this is just forefront in my mind right now because, you know, we finished up tax filing and stuff. So, and we've talked about on the show, I, uh, football officiating is a hobby of mine. So I actually spent $1,300 more last year to officiate football than what I made in income. Is that so, your wife? Oh, she knows. She's going to know now. She, she already knows. She was not impressed with that because <laughs> there's a lot of, so I actually, part of me feels like I might be in the middle of my biggest money mistake ever. And people don't actually understand, but between the uniform and the, the association dues, the travel, the food when you're on the road. And then the in addition, hour? you might did stop you the happy hour you might, out or did you include it in that 1300? No. Well, not, I can't include a, a beer on my tax return. So you probably for, lost like 1800. I know how many beers oh, you drink. Yeah. Okay. Come on. <laughs> um, so you add up all those things. It's a lot. And then I also go to two camps every year. So that's actually the big, cause one's over a thousand dollars to go. And then one's like a couple hundred bucks, but you have to get a hotel food when you're there. So anyway, it's, um, I actually might be in the, in the middle of it. And then just from a, just purely from a business perspective, like it's a hobby that I spend a lot of time doing outside of work. Well, and I was talking with one of my officiating colleagues the other week, you know, I'm looking at how I spent more money than I made well, what if I put that energy into helping run our business, right? If I spend five hours a week on football, what if I just spend another five hours a week in my career? What's really going to pay off in the long term? So I think there's a large opportunity cost there, and it, it could potentially be the biggest mis money mistake I ever made was starting to work football games, but we'll see. Yeah, you know what, though? That's a hobby. I mean, I could look yeah. at it. Like no one's making money, whether you hunt, fish, golf, like no one's making money on hobbies and I'm not either. That's your hobby. I mean, if you look at my hobby, the if we're going to talk about like biggest waste of money ever, it's my hobbies. <laughs> I mean, I got more fishing gear and I've spent more money on boats and all this stuff, but I don't look at that as a money mistake because I get enjoyment from it. My family gets enjoyment from it. That's our hobby. We like to boat in the summer. I like to fish. And most people be like, well, that's a huge mistake. Well, it's a huge mistake if you don't enjoy doing this with your family. Like for us, it's an investment in our family for the summer. You know, we go down Lake of the Ozarks for the summer. We boat all summer. There's no financial benefit of that. It's all just a cash burn. But the benefit is we get to spend the whole summer with our girls and be around and be present and have all those memories for some day in the future. And trust me, it's a way bigger money mistake than your football. Than a camp. hobby. Yeah. I mean, football camps like a weekend of gas. Oh, on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. You can uh, yeah. through a thousand not dollars e of gas right. pretty easy anymore. Yeah. It's, it's not even, it's not even comparable, but I just thought it was funny. 
Cause I, you know, when you're going through it, at least for me, when I'm going through, I don't think of it that way. Well, I, I can imagine what your wife had to say, consider, weren't you like hiding, buying pizza at one time? Like you didn't tell her you bought the slice of pizza at Casey's. This is like five years ago or four I, years ago or I something. have to do a lot of sneaky stuff with my money uh, to live my life. Well, I think on, on that note, uh, <laughs> I appreciate everybody listening. Tune in next time. Lias, do you have any other closing remarks for everybody today? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the show. If you've got a money mistake you want us to talk about on the show, you can get us at btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, Consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional. 